thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this Bible study on the book of Genesis. Tonight we are going to be going through, we're going to look at chapter 14, uh, which concerns wars in which Abraham was engaged on account of his nephew Lot. So why don't we turn to scripture to chapter 14 and begin reading there. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elassar, Shedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and subdued the Rephaim in Ashteroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in, the Mount Se- in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and subdued all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. When Shedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the mountain. So the enemy took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he let forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and routed them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the goods and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his goods and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Shedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I would take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So, obviously, there are some connections between this episode and the preceding ones. We know from chapter 13 and 12 that Lot and Abram split, and that Lot decided to cast his eyes on the most fertile part of the land, went down closer to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and eventually went and lived in the city because his commerce was tied to these cities and he derived all his wealth from it. So eventually, from them. So eventually he joined these cities and lived there. And now we have these events. What is interesting, obviously, is that the choices of these two men, one living in a city amidst the uh, uh, Sodomite and uh, dwelling with them, he, to a certain degree, was influenced by their lifestyle, whereas uh, Abram stayed as a sojourner, a man who had no fixed dwelling, which is an image of the Christian on this earth, where we do not have a fixed dwelling, but are here only temporarily on our way to heaven. Now this chapter exhibits an unparalleled concentration of unique or rare features of all kinds. First, we have uh, a biblical report of warfare. This is the first such report in scripture. We notice that Abram is a remarkable military chief and hero. Can I come back and talk about this? For the first time, he is given the epithet, the Hebrew. And he comes into contact with a Canaanite priest, a mysterious priest, which is known as Melchizedek. Furthermore, two uncommon divine titles are used here, God Most High and Creator of Heaven and Earth. The latter never reappears in the Old Testament. It will appear in the New Testament, uh, which is obviously very interesting. The contrast between the anonymity of the Pharaoh in chapter 13 and the rich list of names of kings here is really striking. Pharaoh was far more important in terms of his political clout than all the kings listed here, uh, perhaps with the exception of Shedor Leomer, but all the other ones are really um, kings over cities. The list of eastern kings is presented in strict alphabetical order, but the name of the Canaanite kings are arranged in two pairs. There's the Bira Bersha and the Shinab Shemer. We'll come back to that. The name Abram occurs seven times in this chapter. And each of Melchizedek's two blessings contain seven words. And the other really striking feature of this chapter is that excluding proper names, so excluding proper names, about 11% of the words in this chapter never occur, or rarely so, in the rest of the Old Testament. So it 
it sets all the foregoing sets this chapters a little bit apart, and there has been speculation that the source uh, of this chapter is different from uh, the um, the rest of Genesis, as if the uh, copyist or the editor or the one who actually penned this chapter down was able to access other sources of information available to him here uh, than in the rest of the book of Genesis. We'll come back and talk about the obviously the number seven, which is, we've already said it multiple times, tied to the covenant as we go through the chapter. Now, the fundamental point or the main point of this chapter is that Abraham saves Lot, saves the life of Lot. But 11 verses, the first 11 verses, have nothing to do with Abraham and his family and could have been avoided if the usual austere narrative style had been used. As we've seen before, very few details are given about the names of the kings or the names of the local rulers, their genealogies, their background. And here, the same could have happened if all they had to say was that five kings fought against four. And we would understand then the main gist of the whole chapter being that Abraham is saving Lot. Instead, we're given uh, quite a bit of detail on uh, these kings. And again, as we said, it's, it, it, all of this leads us to think that the author was able to incorporate uh, intact parts of another text into his own. The puzzling epithet, Abraham the Hebrew, probably came from this other source. I mean, that's a, obviously a hypothesis, but the fact that he's called now Abraham the Hebrew when he was not called that before, it isn't something he calls himself. Abraham never says, I am the Hebrew. It is a name given him, and as we've said earlier, Hebrew obviously go back to Eber, who is one of the ancestors of Abraham, or Abraham in that case. So at, at this point... <clears throat> Abraham is characterized as a Hebrew because genealogically, he, genealogically he, go back to, he goes back to uh, Eber, and uh, therefore it, is, uh, it will be interesting to see if he's the only one who received this epithet or others who also go back to uh, Eber are called Hebrews. And this is something not uh, completely clear here. Now, one thing that indicates the... Um, antiquity of the text is the alliance that Abram has with the Amorites, the dwellers of Canaan, because we know from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 and following, that alliances with the Amorites or the dwellers of Canaan was absolutely forbidden, and uh, all social exchange was also forbidden. Hence, the fact that this is noted in this chapter about the father of the faith, indicate his antiquity prior to Exodus. But now, what is the purpose of all of this? Why is it that the man who displayed fear and evasiveness in Egypt shows himself fearless and courageous here? And why is it that when he had experienced his nephew's estrangement, he doesn't hesitate to go out and rescue him? So on the one hand, 
we see that when he went down to Egypt, he was extremely careful and tried as much as possible to avoid any conflict. Whereas here, he does not hesitate to mount an expedition and go after uh, men of arms, men trained in, in, uh, in war, in order to rescue a cousin who actually had turned away from him. So, the chapter itself is divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 6 speaks of rebellion and war. Then verses 8 through 13 tell us about uh, go, um, Lot being taken prisoner. And verses 14 through 24 is really the victorious return uh, after uh, Abram let forth his men to go and free his, uh, his nephew. That, these are the three sections of the chapter, and that's what we're going to um, go through and cover. So then, the first six verses, we have a number of names that are given us. So let's just um, go back and read them. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elessar, Shedor Leomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Amraphel is utterly unknown. We have no notion of who Amraphel was. Um, he was the king of Shinar. Now, Shinar, on the other hand, is known. This is Babylon. It's the old name given to the city of Babylon. So, Amraphel obviously was some unknown king of the city of Babylon. Ariok, king of Elessar. Now, Ariok. There are names that correspond to this one, such as Ariuk or Ariwuk, which are mentioned in the Mari archives about 1800 before Christ. There are other references also to a man named Ariuki of the Nuzi documents, which is um, 15th century before Christ. So it could be one of them. Elasar is Ashur, the city that gave name to the land of Assyria. So, again, in, the, in this case, the king, uh, Ariok, is not completely known, although there are references pointing in that direction. The city is Ashur, which, is, which will give birth to Assyria. So now we have a king from Babylon and a king from, essentially, an Assyrian king. Shedor uh, Leomer, for all his importance, is utterly unknown. We don't know who it is. Tidal is Northwest Semitic transcription of the Hittite royal name Tudalias. And Tudalias, born by um, four kinds of the first of whom lived in the 17th century. So he actually is born from a, a lineage of kings, the first living in the 17th century. So that would be essentially uh, Tidal, king of Goyim. Now, Goyim is an unknown place. It might simply refer to the king of the people. Um, the names now in verse 2, verse 2 being, These kings made war with Bira, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bila, that is Zoar. These are now Canaanite kings. So you can see that you have kings from Babylon, kings from Assyria, and probably regions close to it who made war with Canaanite kings. So this is effectively an international war 
um, that um, spans multiple borders, even some multiple modern borders. The, um, the, yeah, so the Valley of Sedim is mentioned again in verse 10 and is nowhere else. Could be, in fact, a play word on Sodom, but we're not sure where it is. So, the next thing they do is that they, there is a mention of the Dead Sea here. Uh, specifically, what it says now, the Dead Sea. Or the Salt Sea, as it listed in verse 3. Salt Sea, Dead Sea. The Dead Sea was formed 12,000 years ago, but the great disproportion between the 1,200 feet depth in the north and the 20 feet depth in the south indicates that this, this, that this part is of much recent formation. Th- therefore, it could have been the case that it was much smaller before and extended over time. And uh, probably th- this could explain why we have very few um, geological re- uh, remnants of much of what is discussed here when it comes to these cities. In any event... These kings, the Canaanite kings, rebelled against the, the Shedor Leomer, who um, is um, a king probably related to um, Babylon or to the Assyrians. And usually the way rebellion begins is when they stop paying taxes. Typically it is related to taxes. So now they... Uh, and, and as a result, in verse 5, these kings mount an invasion and come down on them. And the, t- the detail um, in verse 5 details the invasion route, followed by the kings from the east. And um, in v- verse 5, it says, In the 14th year, Shedor Leomer and the kings who were with him came and subdued the Rephaim and Asherot, Karnaim, the Zuzim, and Ham, and the Imim, and Shaveh Kiriathayim. The idea here is that they're following a specific path, delineated. Uh, along a route that uh, goes from um, uh, sort of east to, um, I'm sorry, from north to south. And this is called the King's Highway, as indicated in the book of Numbers 21, verse 22. And today it is called, is known as Highway 65 in Jordan. So it's a very well-known route that they have actually taken. And the register of place names seems to be derived from an ancient geographic list, for it bears close affinity with the Mesopotamian genre of itineraries attested as early as Old Babylonian times, about 1830 BC. So, the uh, the probably the arc, it could be that since the um, we think that the 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 Pentateuch was pent down, was written in its final form while the Jews were in Babylon, it is entirely possible that the um, editor or the one who penned this, um, the entire story enriched the original account given them um, and going back to Moses through uh, accounts that existed in the libraries of Babylon. That is entirely possible because the references given and the way the um, story is laid out resembles what, what, what one might find in the Babylonian and Assyrian accounts. Now, Rephaim, uh, these are pre-Israelite inhabitants of the lands and are mentioned in Genesis 15, verse 20, but they disappeared by the time of the Exodus. 
and as Deuteronomy 2.20 and 3.11 attest. Now, popular imagination endowed them with the attributes of our aboriginal giants. They lived in the region of Bashan, the northernmost part of the area east of the Jordan, as um, indicated in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11. Other than that, the term Rephaim refers to the shades of the dead, a meaning that is also Phoenician and Punic. But we don't think that in a specific instance, when they speak of the war with the Rephaim, um, that there is an indication of the shades of the dead. Instead, it's probably the people who lived there and who must have been taller than average. Ashteroth Karnaim are two originally distinct but closely neighboring cities, being both capital of Bashan and succession. So these are well-known cities, and they were also completely uh, subdued. Now, the Zumim mentioned nowhere else, none also, um, and so very, very uh, that may have also been known as uh, the Zamzumim, but it's not really clear. And finally, the Imim, according to Deuteronomy 2, 10 and following, they were a race of giants like the Rephaim and received the name, which means frightful, from the Moabites who dispossessed them. And finally, the Horites are identified with the Horians, a non-Semitic people who emerged in light, um, in, who emerged toward the end of the third millennium in Upper Mesopotamia. So, as again, as we can see from this introduction, the point is to note that this was a war that was fairly general, involved a number of people, a number of cities, and that these came who came down from the north were victorious all the way through. No one was able to actually stop them. Now, against that background, we get, we come to the, uh, um, we come to the point, to the part of the chapter where effectively Lot was um, taken. So, these are verses 8 through 13. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim against these other four kings, which are Shedorleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elessar, four kings against five. And the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the mountain. So the enemy took all the goods from, of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So Now, Hebron, where Abram resided, lay outside the path of hostilities. It was not along the route, the, king, the royal route, and therefore he was completely um, spared these hostilities. He may have been aware of them, but uh, he was not engaged in them. <clears throat> The three fa families mentioned here, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, are presumably three aristocratic families in Hebron. But, um, and so the, um, going back to these verses, we know that the kings, the Canaanite kings were defeated by Shedorleomer and the kings who were with him. And uh, the indication that there were bitumen pits uh, in the area is there to, to tell us that when the, um, the Canaanite kings fled, they really fled in a hurry because they were completely defeated and they were so much in a hurry that some actually fell in pits because they didn't know where they were going. And the rest fled to the mountains. They didn't even go back to Sodom. Therefore, the cities were 
were unprotected and it was able to, the enemy was able to go in and pillage the entire city and take all the goods with them as punishment for the people who were refusing to pay their taxes. And the, the, uh, the, the custom would have been to take all able men and women as slaves back to their cities and Lot was also taken as a slave. So, someone who had escaped, we don't know who exactly, went and told Abram that the, um, um, what had happened, that Lot, his nephew, had been kidnapped. And he, uh, Abram was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, and he was the brother of Eshkolev Novaner, and these were allies of Abram. And we said earlier, uh, these three names, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, presumably represent three aristocratic families in Hebron. And the word allies that is used here in Hebrew is really bale berit, bale berit, which is bound by a treaty. Hence, there was a treaty between all three of them. Um, and um, when Abram decided to go and rescue his brother, they came and helped him. Furthermore, Mamre, who's... Um, as you recall, his kinsman, the Amorite, had been attacked, would also have an incentive to support him. Now, what is uh, Abram doing, really? What is he performing here? Why is that important? To understand that, we have to um, understand that in among the Jews, there is something that a rabbi would call the duty of pidion shibuyim, pidion shibuyim, redeeming those taken captive. That is a duty among the Israelites to redeem those who are taking, taken captive. And that would explain, for instance, why even today in the modern state of Israel, when soldiers are taken captive, the state of Israel will do everything it can to free them. Mustard means that probably he armed them. He must have bought weapons and armed all of them. And he took all those who were born into his household, slaves born of slaves, as well as free men. And uh, we notice that it says uh, he took, essentially, he took 318 of them. Now, that is a very interesting note, 318. We're not certain that that is a correct number. It is unparalleled in biblical sources. And if it is 318, does it really mean 318? It is really not clear that that is the case. We only find 318 in, uh, well, actually, not, yeah, 318 in a scarab of Amenhotep III. And one writing about Amenhotep III, 14th century BC, records the arrival of his bride, Princess Giluepa of Mitanni, together with 317 harem women, making a company of 318 in all. That is one reference we have of number 318, but we're not really sure that that is the case. The other thing is that the grand total of all persons who suffered violence in the course of the fourth day fighting reported in the Iliad comes to 318. Curious, but I don't think there's any reference or connection to it. And finally, 318 happens to be the sum of 12 prime numbers. So 7, 11, 13, 17, 19, 23, 29, 31, 
37, 41, 43, and 47. Be it as it may, none of that explains why it was 318, so we can take that as at face value, uh, meaning that Abram really had a force of 318 men. But that sounds dubious because um, we would then have to explain how a force of 318 men could rout the army of five kings who had been consistently victorious all the way through. Be it as it may, and the text doesn't really provide any uh, sufficient uh, help here, uh, we know that uh, they went up to Dan, which is the northern extremity of the land of Israel, as indicated in Judges 20, verse 1, and Samuel chapter 3, verse 20, which will then be identified with Tel Dan, Tel Al-Qadi, which is four miles west of Banyas, at the foot of Mount Hermon. It, the city of Dan was founded in the 3rd millennium before Christ and was a prosperous and important settlement in the 18th century BC. And the original name was Laish, and one who have, and one would have expected to see Laish, which is Dan, which, which is Dan. But it seems that its use, so it seems that the use of Dan would have is effectively anachronistic, meaning that. If the text was written at a time when the events had taken place, that the, the author would have used the name of Laish, L-A-I-S-H, L-A-I-S-H. But instead, he ends up using the name Dan, which is much more modern, and therefore it could be that, the, again, the editor writing in Babylon had decided to uh, forego the name Laish altogether because presumably most of the folks would not be able to associate with it or recognize it and instead use the a common name of Dan that they would have been more familiar with. Now, um, they attacked by night. Now, attacks by night were not really common because it was very difficult for armies to fight by night without the proper logistical support. Furthermore, one might suppose that these armies decided that they were victorious, no one would oppose them anymore, and hence they had let down their guards and were not expecting anyone to come and attack them and certainly not mount such a bold attack against them. That could explain how Abraham was able to actually pull it off. And um, it could be that uh, the, you know, he might have used fire, or might have used, uh, he might have caused the horses to panic. Whatever the case may be, he was able to mount that attack by night. Now, the location, the Hobash, as indicated in, yeah, in verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and routed them, and pursued them to Hobash, north of Damascus. Well, that's a location that is unknown today. We really don't know where that Hobash is. Be it as it may, he essentially uh, routed them and pursued them for a long time. And the puzzling thing is that it must have taken Abram and his uh, men several weeks to reach Damascus and come back. And that could potentially explain why, as they come back, the king Sodom is out to meet him. Because presumably in the first um, night when they attacked these forces, they were able to, these forces fled without taking all the slaves with them. Hence, all the ones who were prisoners were then able to return home while Abram continued to his pursuit and 
the reason why he might have pursued them that far was to make sure that they would not come back and attack them. So, on his way back, being victorious, the king of Sodom came out to meet him. Now, came out to meet him is a, in the Hebrew is inherently ambiguous. It could mean to greet, as is the case in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14, in 1 Samuel 8, 16, in the book of Proverbs 7, chapter 7, verse 15, or much more frequently, to confront, not to greet. Uh, as is found in Numbers 20, 20, 31, 13, and in Joshua 8, 5. Notice that the king of Sodom brings no gifts and no blessings. Therefore, it might be that his coming out to meet Abraham was confrontational in nature. Now, they meet in the valley of Shaveh, Valley of the King. Again, that's a known, known, not a known location. We really don't know where that valley is. All right. Now notice that Abram essentially has risks everything to save Lot. But what if, what of God's promise? Was it wise for him to put himself in harm's way? Couldn't he have, you know? Let it be, because after all, Lot got what he deserved. No one forced him to go live among the Sodomite. Why then does Abram risk everything to go and save him? Well, there are a couple of things that we can say here. The first being that Abram act, acted out of faith. He trusted that God will make him victorious. He therefore acted out of faith and attending to his duties, which is to free prisoners, and especially free prisoners who are his own kin. And that can be compared to Our Lady going to visit Elizabeth. Because when she was pregnant, when she was with child, and this is the Son of God, one could argue that it would have been dangerous for her to leave her hometown and expose the child to any risk or danger could have been better, one would say, if she had stayed behind and not gone out to and took this hard journey to go and visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was also with child. Uh, according to St. Francis, when Our Lady uh, stood before her personal judgment, this was one of the accusations that was leveled against her by the devil. So, even though when we are entrusted with important missions... Which are, um, which one might say, are, are have a far-reaching impact on the world. We cannot necessarily neglect the small things that we still have to do, or people we need to take care of. Even if what we have, even when we are um, entrusted with very important missions, that's very important for us to understand and to see what Abraham does here. He does not. Um, allow his concern for the covenant or for all the people under his care to prevent him from rescuing his nephew. Then, when the king of Sodom appears, the battle moves from the physical realm, the realm of swords and horses and, and weapons, to the spiritual one. And we see now a triangle forming. There is Abram on one hand, there is the king of Sodom, and then there is the king of Salem. 
two kings come out to meet him. Now the king of Salem came out, and he brought out bread and wine and offered a blessing. The king of Sodom brought nothing and offered no blessing. The conversation with the king of Sodom was all about financial reward. The king of Sodom told Abram that he could keep what he was able to free. Even though the king of Sodom had really no authority to tell him anything, because after all it was Abraham who freed him and not the other way around. The king of Salem comes out and makes an offering. It's a priest king because he can offer sacrifice. And he offers a sacrifice of bread and wine. Now, Salem refers to Jerusalem, Jairusalem. This is the name it will receive later. But there is no indication that is really given that this is the older name of Jerusalem. Uh, since in the Egyptian writings of the 19th and 18th centuries before Christ, the city is already mentioned as Urushalimu. Urushalimu. And in Al Amarna text of the 15th and 14th centuries as Urasalim. And the full name originally meant the foundation of the god Shalim. So later the name was converted to the city of peace. Because presumably the greeting Shalim or Shalom referred to the greeting of that god, whomever he may be. But then the word Shalom acquired the meaning of peace. And hence the city became the city of peace. And it is no coincidence that David named two of his own sons after the city. Ab Shalom or Absalom, Absalom and Shalomo for again uh, peace. Now, Melchizedek offers bread and wine to God Most High, El Elyon. El presumably means to be strong and El Elyon to ascend, which means the strongest ascendancy, if you will, that is the absolute transcendence of God. He is offering bread and wine to the God who is absolutely transcendent above all. That understanding of God as a being that completely transcends everything, and it is not clear from that particular title whether in this context Melchizedek already understood God to be above all creation, but certainly above all other gods, um, this conscience of the supremacy and transcendent nature of God was extremely rare in the ancient world. And it is very interesting to us that Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of what he had. But why? Did he give a tithe to the king of Salem and to no other? There must have been already a, an understanding that Abram was giving a tithe to this priest king who is the priest king of the God that Abram had met. There is no doubt about that because otherwise he would not have given him a tithe as an offering to, 
to share with the peace offering that um, um, Melchizedek was about to make in the, in the, in the, during the, uh, this, this sacrifice that he was presenting. So, w- what, is, what is key here for us to understand is that the, this king, this Melchizedek, Melech means really Melech Sadiq, Malik Sadiq, which means righteous king. It is a title more so than a name. And we really don't know who that Melchizedek is, although there is a, an, an older tradition that says that this Melchizedek is none other than Shem, the older son of Noah, who would have been the righteous king that was dispossessed by Canaan, the grandson of Noah, who happens to be the son of Ham, and Ham was the son that saw his father's nakedness and was uh, cursed then by Noah. But he managed afterwards to effectively take away the kingship from uh, Shem. And it could be that Shem is actually this Melchizedek, that, and that uh, he... Uh, therefore, would explain in the connection between Abram and him, and the fact that both of them worship the same, uh, the same God. In all of this uh, chapter, the thing that is consistent all the way through is the fact that Abram, without concern to his own safety, go out and save his cousin, his nephew. I mean, and then when he brings him back he refuses to have any dealing whatsoever with the king of Sodom because he's concerned that the rumor would spread that he did it mainly for money. He doesn't want to cause scandal among those who follow him and let them think that all he was concerned about was really the money and not his, his nephew. Um, having said that, so he refuses to allow any of the sports to go to him but he doesn't begrudge his um, allies, and he says they can take their share if they wanted to, but he wasn't taking his. He will have nothing to do with, with uh, the king of Sodom uh, because he knew already how evil this king was and what he was up to. And so he refuses to do that, and he essentially frees all the people who came with him and frees his, his nephew Lot. And that's what uh, he does as a man of God, returning back to his own flock. So in this chapter, we see a picture of Abram that we have not seen anywhere else, a picture of a warrior, a picture who is not afraid of a man who is not afraid to undertake, um, undertake difficult missions, risky missions, and to undertake them all the way to the end, make sure that they come to completion, because he pursued them all the way to Damascus. It is an image of strength, an image of courage, and a testament to the qualities of this man of faith who trusted God in everything he did, even when what he was called to do was really extraordinary for him, out of his zone of comfort. Yet he did it because he knew that this was what God had wanted for him. And in this, we need when we see this, when we see this picture, we do ask ourselves this simple question, to what degree are we also acting in the same way, boldly and with courage, even when God takes us out of our comfort zone and place us in 
in positions that we feel are not really cut for, cut for us. We feel that these positions are made for others with better talents than the ones we have. And yet, it is us who God places in these situations, and it is us, and it is from us that He expects certain results to come. What do we do then? Are we able to stand up, believe in Him, and walk boldly as we ought to, or are we simply shrinking away from the occasion and moving back to our own comfort zone, leaving God behind? Oftentimes, our comfort zone is one that restricts the activities of the Lord because it is a zone in which we are in command. We are in control. It is a zone in which things happen according to our own plans. And oftentimes, God's plans are far greater than the ones we ever have, and He needs us to follow Him and not, instead of asking Him to follow us. So again, we might want to consider asking ourselves this question, am I in a comfort zone where God is uncomfortable? And likewise, if God takes me to a space where I'm uncomfortable, what do I do? Do I follow Him? Do I stay with Him? Do I remain faithful? Or do I go back to my comfort? These are important questions for us to ponder on our journey as we look to Abram or Abraham, the father of our faith, and try to imitate him and, um, imitate him and walk the same walk he um, walk in his, uh, in his footsteps, uh, being mindful of God's presence in our lives and mindful that God is the one who is guiding us in all things. So, may God bless you and keep you and give you the grace to follow Him even when He takes you out of your comfort zone. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.